This afternoon, we're going to be talking about death. Most specifically, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we find it in Lord's Day 16. It's that part of the Apostles' Creed that we've reached. And so, in connection with that, we're going to read together from Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, the verses 50 to 56. At this point, Jesus has been, uh, he's been uh, tried and he's been convicted, although they have no grounds on which to convict him. He's been led to Golgotha, he's been crucified, and then it says in verse 46 of Luke 23 that he breathed his last. So he has died on the cross, and we come to what happens to him after that now. You'll be able to find that on page 1217, 1217 of your pew Bible. Verse 50, Luke 23, verse 50, and following. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and when they observed the tomb, and, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid, then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandments. So far, the word of God. We'll now look at our confessions specifically the Heidelberg Catechism, looking at Lord's Day 16, and you can find that on page 530 of your book of praise. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, have you ever done something that came at great personal cost but was ultimately the right thing to do? 
Joseph of Arimathea was one such man. For him, Christ's death spelled the end. The Christian movement was pretty much over from his point of view. There was this this promise of light after darkness that Christ had brought. This promise of a kingdom that was coming into this world. Christ's coming, preaching, teaching, and healing seemed to offer so much hope and so much joy for so many people. And with his death, it all seemed to be lost. It all seemed to be caught up in darkness. This was the end. And now all that was left for Joseph was to honor him in his death. In order to understand the magnitude of what Joseph did, you first have to understand who he was. Now there are several men named Joseph mentioned in the New Testament, but this particular Joseph, who was of a small town in Judea called Arimathea, he's only ever mentioned here in this one event. You'll find him talked about in the other Gospels in parallel passages in Mark and John, Matthew, Mark, and John, but that is all. Nowhere else do we find reference to him. So who is this man? Who is Joseph of Arimathea? Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the council. Now, to be clear, this wasn't just any council. In and around uh, Judea and wherever the Jews had found themselves, in various cities, you had leaders, uh, rulers, religious rulers specifically, who were called the Sanhedrin. And in each of these villages around Jerusalem, they were all members of what was called the Lesser Sanhedrin. But Joseph of Arimathea was the one who was a member of the council. And that was what was called the Greater Sanhedrin in Jerusalem itself. This was the higher court. It was the assembly of elders appointed to be the supreme council and the supreme tribunal over the Jews. And they were given the right to carry out basically any sentence short of death. Only Rome claimed the right over life and death. And that's what they would not give to this council. But they had the right to do almost anything else. And you only have to think of, for example, uh, the apostle Peter, Later in, the, in Acts, when he is going into the temple, and they have the right to capture Peter and John together, and they have the right to beat them. They were given this authority, and it was this council, this group of religious leaders made up of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and others, that was the group that was given the right, ultimately, by Pontius Pilate himself to condemn Jesus to death. Now there were members of this council who disagreed with the decisions of council. Sometimes we get this idea that when Jesus came before the tribunal, before the Sanhedrin, that he was condemned across the board by everybody. But actually we're given a bit of a glimpse behind the scenes here that it wasn't one unified front, but there were members who disagreed with the council. One 
man that we can think of would have been Nicodemus, whom Jesus met in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. Now, for fear of his colleagues, Nicodemus met Jesus late at night to ask him questions. But he was a, he was a supporter of Jesus despite this. Another was Joseph of Arimathea, whom we met in our passage today. Joseph of Arimathea, as we read in verse 51, had not consented to their decision to condemn Jesus Christ to death. And this was a risky decision to make, considering the attitudes of the rest of the council. But now we find him doing something even riskier. Jesus, having been convicted by this very council, is now taken care of by Joseph of Arimathea in his death. We find Joseph taking down the body of Jesus in order to give him an honorable and respectful burial. What this meant for Joseph and what it means for us today is something that we'll look at under this theme. Joseph's bravery, Christ's victory. We'll see first the burial of Christ, the fact of his death next, and the benefit of his death third. Joseph's actions were remarkable. Christ's followers had walked with him in life, even though Joseph and those who had supported Jesus hadn't dared to do this. But now when his disciples have abandoned him in death, Joseph does what they fear to do. He goes to the governor himself, the only one with the authority to let them take down the body of Jesus. And he asks for the body of Jesus to be turned over to him. Now in this, I want you to notice three things. In the first place, notice the tender care with which he treats Jesus' body. We see him wrapping the body in linen. We read in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, that in addition to this, he brought with him a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes. The reason for that would be to, to treat the body, to prepare it for burial and to deal with the smell of decomposition that would eventually set in. As this linen is wrapped around Jesus, the spices are packed in close. Now, this might not seem like such a big deal at first glance, but that's no small price to pay. Joseph was, Joseph was giving Jesus a rich man's burial. He was giving him a rich man's burial. That weight of spices for treating the body would be by one commentator's estimation, 150 to $200,000 in today's money. Now we know from this same gospel passage that Nicodemus helped Joseph to bury Jesus and so he probably would have helped him to bear that cost. Both of them would have been rich men being on this council. But it was still a significant sacrifice for these two men. And it showed how greatly they respected Jesus and how tenderly they cared for his body. In the second place, more than just these herbs that you see packed in with him and the money and the care that's put into that, we see him placed into a new tomb. In the ancient world, a tomb wasn't a, a one-person thing, but a tomb was something that you had for families, 
whole families. It would be a big cave cut into a rock in the side of a hill. And to have a new tomb was a pretty expensive thing to make as well. You would carve out shelves in this cave for different family members through the generations, and their bodies would be placed there. And it would be passed down from father to son. This was another reason why the herbs would have been important to pack a body in, because you would have been going in and out of that tomb from time to time as well. You can see an Old Testament version of this picture of a tomb with the family tomb of a man called Abraham, who was a forefather of the nation of Israel. He bought a similar kind of tomb in a place called Hebron, and Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried there, Genesis 23, Genesis 49, verse 31. His son Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried there. You can see that in Genesis 35 and Genesis 49. And his son Jacob and his wife Leah were buried there. You can also find that in Genesis 49 and described further in Genesis 50, verses 4 to 5 and verses 12 to 13. Jacob's second wife, Rachel, was buried elsewhere. She wasn't buried in the family tomb. But burial, for the most part, for the ancient Jews, it was a family affair. So for, for Joseph to take Jesus and to bury him in a new tomb, in a family tomb, was a huge honor. Last of all, if you touched a corpse, according to Old Testament law, you would be ceremonially unclean. They would have to work quickly to be able to cleanse themselves, which is to make themselves ceremonially clean again before the Sabbath day. They were willing to become unclean for him, which was a humbling thing. Now you have to remember again from their perspective, they didn't see some long-term benefit in this. They didn't see Jesus rising from the dead again. This was the end of the Christian movement in their eyes. The money that they invested, the love that they showed putting him in the family tomb, their personal willingness to become unclean in order to care for him showed their devotion and their tender care. As anyone who supported Jesus at this point in time was in danger, and that's the reason why all of the disciples were hiding in the following days, they were doing something that showed their love without expecting anything in return. And this is something that we ourselves should pray for as well, brothers and sisters, that our own lives would reflect this kind of selfless devotion to Christ. But there's something that we have to remember as well. This wasn't just something that's inscribed in Scripture to put Joseph of Arimathea on a pedestal, to hold him up for the rest of us to follow, to hold him up for the rest of us to, to emulate, as if Joseph's bravery carried the day although it was a remarkable act of courage on the part of Joseph and Nicodemus. But ultimately, this was Christ's heavenly Father 
showing tender care to his son whose work on the cross was now done. And this was his heavenly father working to fulfill a promise that had been made centuries before through the prophet Isaiah, which you can find in chapter 53, verse 9. It says that though he was assigned a grave with the wicked there, he was assigned to be thrown away with the bodies of wherever the rest of the criminals would be thrown. He was given a grave with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This was his heavenly father's declaration. He was given this by his heavenly father as a final declaration that he had done no deceit, nor was there any violence in his mouth. And this brings us to the second point that we'll consider today, the fact of his death. There's a point here that I'd like to deal with briefly, and that's at the end of verse 38. If you look there, the end of verse 38, it says, pardon me, I think, I think I have the wrong verse here for a moment. <laughs> so it says that Jesus requested the body of Jesus, uh, that, that um, Joseph of Arimathea requested the body of Jesus. Now oh, there we go, 52. Verse 52 of our passage today. Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus. Now, there, there are some people who suggest that Joseph of Arimathea was part of some vast conspiracy here. They suggest that Jesus was not dead, but that Jesus had only fainted. And they look at the, the myrrh and the aloes that Joseph brought to the tomb. They look at the myrrh and the aloes that Nicodemus probably helped buy, and they say, well, these would have been medicinal, the clue is right there in the text. It would have meant to, been meant to treat him and to revive him, bring him back to good health again. Well, there's an obvious problem with this to start with. And that's, really? A hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes worth $150,000 to $200,000 in order to treat someone? That's one big problem that they run into here. But there are more serious complications than just the absurdity of using a hundred pounds of herbs meant to treat a body as, as medicine. And there are two things that stand out here. The first is that Roman soldiers had a vested interest in making sure that nobody came off that cross alive. Well, what was the reason for that? The reason for that was that they themselves would be held accountable for the life of anybody who escaped. There would be serious penalties if a prisoner escaped, and the common penalty that came with that was death. This is why we find later when the Pharisees asked the soldiers of Rome to spread the news that the disciples had come in and taken Jesus, from the tomb that 
they said, we'll have to speak on your behalf to Pilate because otherwise the penalty, even for losing a body, would have been death for them. So they wouldn't have been so quick to pass Jesus off to these men, especially considering how soon it was that he was considered dead. Pontius Pilate himself was surprised by the fact, and we find that in the other Gospels. He was surprised by the fact that he was dead so soon. They wouldn't have been so quick to pass off the body of Jesus unless they were sure that he was dead. That's the first problem. In the second place, we find them thrusting a spear through his side. The reason that they did this was to make absolutely sure that he was dead. Romans know how to kill people. This was what the Roman Empire was good at. And so if they struck a spear into somebody's side to make sure that they were dead, that person, you could be pretty sure, would be dead. And if there was any doubt remaining, look at the result that's described in the verses after it says his that uh, he was taken down. It said that when they had thrust a spear through his side, in one of the uh, parallel accounts here, it says that when they had thrust a spear through his side, water and blood poured out. Water here is a description of clear fluid. Now, when you're hanging on the cross for a few hours, you begin to asphyxiate, which is to say you start having trouble breathing because you are hanging by your arms and you can't lift yourself up enough to breathe properly. The result of that, when you suffer the trauma that Jesus did, as well as when you begin to have trouble breathing, you begin to asphyxiate because you can't lift yourself up anymore. The result of that is that clear fluid builds up around the heart and lungs. And so the only way that clear fluid would run out the side of Jesus is if that spear went right into the chest cavity and pierced his heart and his lungs as well, releasing that. If the soldier is on the ground and he's thrusting the spear upwards, that's where you would expect the spear to go as well. You don't survive that. Jesus was dead. His burial was not part of some vast secret conspiracy to take him to a place where he could be treated. And this is important to reflect on because this is where some modern theologians like to take it because they don't believe in the miracle of a resurrection. His burial was not part of some secret conspiracy to take him to a place where he could be treated. But as our catechism today describes it, his burial testified that he really died. His being put into the tomb, his body being collected from Roman officials and being put into that tomb testified that Jesus was dead. Verse 52, he asked for the body of Jesus. This is important. And it's important as not just a, oh, that's a kind of interesting fact to know. It has real world implications here. Many of us, we tend to take for granted that Jesus died and that he rose again. Death wasn't the end for him. But for Joseph, for the disciples, for everyone else, they didn't see that as the case. This was the end of his work 
on earth from their perspective, and it seemed like such a waste, such a reason for grief and loss. We know this from the discussion of two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, when they're walking and they're, they're grieving together. But they at least had hope. This is important to know that for many of our, because for many of our Canadian friends, loved ones, this would be it for Jesus. And from their perspective, for many, not all, but for many, they don't even have a hope of anything beyond. Death is the full stop. Death is the end, a dark road from which there's no return. There's no light when you disappear into that dark night. There's simply nothing. For some, there's a hope, a faint hope, that there might be something beyond. But there's no certainty that comes with that hope at all. What comes after? What is there? They're gone, that's all. Death is the end. There's no more. Death carries with it a very bitter sting. But you look at Jesus' death. You and I, we look at Jesus' death and we have the tendency to see it as no more than a speed bump rather than the momentous event that it is. Death is so much more for so many people. It's an unimaginable, overwhelming darkness and a source for unending grief. We have grief at loss. We have grief because there's a hole in our lives, because we're going to miss that person. And this is good, and this is right. We miss them, and it's okay to grieve their absence. But we as Christians, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. The reason for this is something that seems so ordinary to us, that speed bump of Christ's death, is really good news. And we'll look at that under our third point today. He doesn't know it yet at this point in time, but Joseph will benefit from Christ's burial. He received a great reward. Although he didn't know it at the time, he was an instrument in God's hands to fulfill that Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 53 to honor Christ in his death. As that instrument, God gave him an honored place in history. We read about him today. But the greatest gift is what he and all who believe in Jesus get. Forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ leading to eternal life. While we might not share in the first part of what Joseph has done, we certainly share in the second part. For all who believe in him, we all share in what we receive in Christ's death. And that, as our catechism describes in question and answer 42, is to have death no longer be a payment for sin, but an entrance into eternal life. Now, that word payment for sin, that comes from the letter to the Romans. 
In the letter to the Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, we read that the wages of sin, the payment of sin is for sin is death. But because of him, we no longer have to pay that payment of sin. Rather, it's an entrance into eternal life. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven because of Jesus. Your old self, your sinful nature is, as our catechism describes it, crucified. The worst parts of you are crucified, put to death, and buried in Jesus, leaving us free to live for him. Now, this doesn't mean that you won't have to struggle with your sin anymore from day to day in life. You, you daily have to fight against that part of yourself. But by the grace of God, your sin is put to death in Christ. By the grace of God, you're killing sin in your life. You're cutting off oxygen to the wrong things you do. Because by his spirit, you want to live the way that Jesus did. Because you belong to him. And because your faith is in him. And he, by his word, is shaping and molding you to become more and more like him. Death has lost its bitter sting. Romans 6, verse 23 again. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we might face the brokenness of this world, the bitterness of the effects of sin in this world, but that for us will come to an end through Jesus. His death means this for us. The worst parts of the effects of sin, that sin which brings out the worst parts in ourselves and others are, is brought to an end in him. There's nothing of that left on the other end. It's an entrance into eternal life, into paradise. How we long for that day. This is the gift he freely gives. This is the gift that Christ has to offer to the world that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. So hold on to that hope and share that hope with your friends and neighbors if they are struggling and if they are grieving where you find your hope and where they too can find their hope if they put their trust in Jesus. That death isn't a long, dark road. It's not a vague, uncertain hope. Christ's death offers hope because it couldn't hold him. The fact that he passed through death took away all sting from death for whoever follows him. Because in Christ's death, there is a certainty to an end to sin and all of the effects of sin and the promise of a new life. Amen.